Good. Thank y'all for the testimony this morning. It is good to be back with you guys. Um, I, uh, I got to listen to the podcast this week, and, and I just want to say, thank you, sweetie. Um, I want to say uh, to everybody, if you didn't get a chance to be here last week and you hadn't listened to the podcast, do yourself and do your soul a favor and go and listen. I want to just say again, thank you to Ben and Anna for sharing last week what the Lord's been doing in your life, and thanks everybody for sharing this morning. Um, I, I've made no um, uh, hesitation to tell you guys, that's my favorite part of the service. It's so cool to see... And to hear what God's doing um, in all of our lives as, as we are just learning to abide in Him. Um, if you ever need uh, encouragement about what it means to, to be a follower of Christ, to walk with Him, all you got to do is just be here on a Sunday morning or join a life group. And you're going to continue to hear story after story after story of people that are pursuing the Lord, failing, getting back up, God picking them up and saying, come on, let's keep going. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. And you know, I was thinking this week... And, uh, and I find it, it's not even ironic, it's, it should be expected at this point. I, I wrote this and I just want to read it and I, I want you to realize what God's doing this morning. I wrote, you know, it's not uncommon for God to ask us to do hard or uncomfortable things. It's not uncommon for us. And I would venture to say for a lot of us that before we were part of this body, it was uncommon for us to be asked to do hard or uncomfortable things. Um, in fact, as we look at examples of abiding that we see in Scripture, we see God using His people in extraordinary ways. Abiding, if you, if you really think about it for a minute, we talk a lot about abiding. For us, that's just a handle, uh, a way of us communicating what it means to really be a follower of Christ, to walk with Him on a moment-by-moment basis. If you think about what it means, it means that God is including us in His supernatural work. He's using broken, messed up people to reveal His glory to the world around us. And as I was thinking about that this week, I, I think about how amazing it is, one, that we get to be included in that, but also when we look at our lives and go, man, our lives are hard, we're having to do uncomfortable things all the time, it's because God is taking us, we talk about in the abiding cycle, that you've got to step out in faith. He's taking us out of what we're comfortable in so that we can experience more of who He is. And so as we look at our lives, as we think about the things that we're struggling with, I want us to see and to understand that those struggles are good. I'm excited about today and what God has to say for us. I was telling Carrie and Ben earlier, if it could go wrong this morning, it has gone wrong. And that used to really frustrate me. And at first this morning, I was just really frustrated. And then as I began to talk to God about it, I realized the enemy was working hard this morning to mess me up and to mess you guys up. And what that really tells us is that God's got a word for us today, and I'm excited about what he's going to say. So, um, I was thinking about this this week. Over the last few weeks, I've, I've had to share with some new friends about our journey to this neighborhood, to McKithen Drive, and what that looked and felt like for me. And I, like many of you, wondered, how's God going to use us here? You know, my life story, your life stories are so vastly different from the people that are our neighbors. And I struggled to see what value I could bring into their lives. Because I don't look like most of the people that live in this neighborhood. My life experiences don't look like most of their life experiences. There's so much about their lives that I don't understand, but as I continually spoke to God about this, He kept saying, this is where I want you to be. I'd be willing to bet that all of us have had experiences like, like mine, or like the McKay shared last week, like Johanna shared this week, where your life 
you feel like you're moving in the right direction, but things are just falling apart around you. But you know that God has continued to say, move down this path. You've all had a time in your life when God told you to do something that seemed impossible. And along with that comes feelings of inadequacy. You look at the task before you, you take an inventory of your skills and your talents and your knowledge, and you realize that you're completely out of your depth. Les Parrott, in his, in his book, shares a similar story. And listen to what his mentor told him. His mentor said, you're right. You don't have anything of value to share with these folks. But consider this. God has much to say to, you, to them through you. Church, that's what the abiding is about. It's not just about us learning about who God is for ourselves. But as part of that process, we're getting to share with other people what we're learning about who God is. And when we're in those moments where we feel inadequate, we're in those moments where we feel like we're out of control, when life is moving faster than we can and we can't seem to get our head above the water, if you will, we need to realize that it's not because we've done anything wrong, per se, It's because God's doing something bigger than we are, and that should excite us. We've been talking about the last couple of weeks about wanting to love like Jesus. I know I certainly do, and I know that you do too. You may not be a part of this church or any church, but something inside of you gravitates toward having solutions to relationships that that challenge you. We all have them, don't we? It can be with a significant other. It can be with your kids, with neighbors, friends, peers, colleagues, or even your enemies. Who wouldn't want to improve those relationships, those courtships, partnerships, friendships? In this series called Love Like That, each week we've been emphasizing what we already know, that none of us have arrived yet, right? We just sang about that, that I want to know more about the Lord, and I'm not as close as I want to be, but I'm moving in that direction. We're all trying to figure this out. We're trying to get it right. And largely because we know that the stakes are high. He's, Bless Parrot has said every week in these messages that, that what we are learning will have a generational impact. And every time I think about that, I think about how significant this is. I think about regularly that my kids are getting to grow up, your kids are getting to grow up in a church that emphasizes what it means to have a personal, alive relationship with Jesus where you talk with him all day, every day, and how that has changed my life. And how much better their lives are going to be than mine is because they're learning this as children, not as adults. A lot of us in this room, a lot of the adults have a lot of baggage that we're still trying to sort through and figure out. But they're not going to have that because they're learning right now what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's exciting to me. All of us intuitively know that our actions, even our intentions, are going to have a great impact. Not, and, and I want us to understand it's not just our children. It's not just our friend's children, but it's our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. There's going to be an impact on the actions of the way we love people today is going to have that far of a reaching impact. Because if we can learn to love like Jesus, it's going to change not just our lives, but the lives of everybody that we know. Our theme passage for this entire series has been Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Let's look at that again to kind of remind us as we get going this morning. It says, watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. 
He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Love like that. Don't you love that phrase? Today we're going to examine the third aspect of what it takes to love like Jesus, and that's to be graceful, okay? First thing, we're going to look at four points today. We're going to look at four significant things, and the first one today is how grace and judgment are connected. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 2 with me. It says, do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Judging has a a negative connotation, even though it literally means to form an opinion or conclusion about something. And that doesn't sound too bad, right? So what's the big deal? Well, how we form that opinion matters. Look at Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 38. It says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured out into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. There seems to be a direct connection between how you form your opinions of others and how God forms an opinion of you. He goes on to say in Matthew chapter 7, we're going to go back to that one, verses 3 through 4. He says, and why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? This passage seems to identify the classic definition of a hypocrite. You accurately form an opinion of others, but don't create an accurate opinion of yourself. I know for many people that their standard uh, appraisal of the church is that it's full of hypocrites. And all of us have experienced that before. And what we're going to talk about today is going to help us to understand why that is and how to get out of that, that world. I want you to consider these three simple definitions for some key theological terms that we're going to talk about today. The first one is justice. And justice is getting what you deserve. The second is mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And then the third one is grace, is getting what you could never earn or deserve. Author Max Lucado puts it this way. He says, mercy gave the prodigal son a second chance. Grace gave him a feast. All of us see the speck in one another's eyes while being oblivious to the tree that's in our own. And we struggle because grace is a gift. It's unconditional and it can't be earned or achieved. And it comes from a heart that requires nothing in return. Which brings us to point number two. Grace is unfair. Grace by its definition is unfair. It doesn't make sense and that's the point. If you want to love like Jesus, you can't limit your love to people who deserve it. Look at John chapter 8 verses 2 through 9. It says at dawn he went to the temple again and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center of them. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. 
When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw the stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. And when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. So this woman is caught in the act of adultery. Not accused of adultery, but caught in the act. This was a trap they set for her. The Pharisees and the religious leaders did what they could do to get rid of Jesus. And they probably followed this couple around, waited a few minutes, then busted the door down, grabbed her, and left him, the guy that she was with, it's just not fair. Then they brought her before Jesus. And the Pharisees start quoting Scripture to Jesus, which, by the way, is never a good idea. Okay? They're telling Jesus this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And they're reminding Jesus that it was a crime punishable by death. And they're trying to trap him. But watch what happens. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, at this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So why did they go home? They were right. They had truth on their side. They had a Bible verse to back it up. Why didn't they just point to the verse and step into the role of jury, judge, prosecutor, and executioner? What stopped them? The answer is truth. The same truth that brought them to the place where they thought they had the right to attack what others have done wrong in their lives also stopped them dead in their own tracks. While Jesus acknowledged what they said was true, he also acknowledged a much bigger truth. He basically communicates this. He says, if those are the rules you want to play by, we can play by those rules. Parents, you ever said that to a kid? Oh, that's the rules you want to play by? Okay, we'll play by those rules. We can use this same truth to destroy her, but when we're done with her, you're next. That's truth. Everyone gets what they deserve. Anybody want to play by those rules? Where the whole crowd gets what they deserve? The author says, nope, I'm out. (laughs) And the whole crowd dropped their stones and they went home. They wanted to condemn her with truth, but once they realized that that truth didn't just condemn her, it also condemned them, they were out. And a lot of us stop reading the story right there. The takeaway is that nobody's perfect, so don't throw stones. We all make mistakes, don't judge. But Jesus isn't done yet. We can't ignore what he says next. The crowd's now gone, and it's just Jesus and the woman standing there. And look what he says to her in verses 10 and 11. He said, then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is important. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. The one person in the crowd that was qualified to condemn her chose not to. And listen, he could have. He could have picked up a stone and and done it. He could have, but he didn't. That's called grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Here's what Jesus is saying. I could condemn you, but instead I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you what you need, not what you deserve. But again, the conversation isn't over. Because Jesus is loving, because Jesus wants the best for her, he can't leave it there. He goes on to say, go and sin no more. In other words, from now on, you can't do this anymore. You can't live your life like this anymore. What was she doing? She was living her life apart from what God said was best for her. She was sinning. Jesus is basically telling her, I could condemn you, but I, want, I won't because I want something better for you. 
You've got to stop living your life that way because it's not the best that I have for you. Jesus offered this woman grace. He offers, her, he offers us that same grace today too. Paul makes it clear in, the, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that no matter what we've done, no matter how bad our sin is, God's grace is big enough to cover it. Jesus' grace covers you. But grace is not permission to keep on sinning. So let me ask you this. Let's make it personal for a minute. Are you accepting God's grace in your life to cover your mistakes? Or are you trying to fix them to yourself? Are you listening to God's truth in your life? Or are you using grace to get away with something? How about this? When you encounter someone that's caught up in something wrong, how do you interact with them? Do you offer them grace? Consider Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 34. This is when Jesus is on the cross. It says, then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you're undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things that we've done. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. How is it possible? How is it possible that a dying thief looks at, takes a suffering, bleeding, crucified man and realizes that he's God? This is the amazing grace of Jesus. He recognized that Christ, that he was Christ before the three hours of darkness, before the curtain in the temple was torn in two, before the earth shook and the rocks split, before the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life, before the centurion exclaimed, surely he was the son of God, this man saw it. Jesus used this moment, this most unfavorable of circumstances to show that it is only by sovereign grace that this thief is saved. Just put this in your mind. The next time you think your life is really difficult and you don't have time to love somebody like Jesus would, you're not on a cross. Amen? Life can get tough sometimes, but it ain't that bad. And in the middle of that, Jesus, in the middle of literally being tortured, he took the time to love this man. This thief looked at love and realized what he had been missing his whole life. He looked at forgiveness and felt the weight of his sin drop to the foot of the cross. He looked at grace and he knew that there was hope. Jesus was praying for the very men who were crucifying him. Jesus was forgiving his enemies as he was being tortured. The criminal begins to reason that if Jesus can do that, then there must be hope for even one like himself. Are you seeing the picture here? In the middle of being tortured, Jesus is loving the people who are torturing them. You know, we've talked about through the last couple of messages about what it means to love our enemies. That's it. So the man turns his faith toward Christ. The thief, by grace, somehow recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of David, as the one who would rule over the kingdom of God. Remember me, says the thief. He's asking the Lord not to forget or to ignore him, but to be mindful of of him and the thief is placing his fate in the hands of jesus and jesus answered the the thief truly i tell you the truth today you will be with me in paradise jesus gives this thief far more than he asked for he asked to be remembered in the kingdom and jesus said tells him you'll enter paradise 
The thief is thinking about the future, but Jesus is speaking about the present, about today. The thief asked Jesus to remember him, and Jesus says, you'll be with me. And he asked what makes life and death paradise. It's life with Christ. Jesus did not say, today you'll be in paradise. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's offer people the same grace when they mess up. Let's tell people the truth, not to condemn, but to love because we want what's best for them. We cannot shy away from the truth and we cannot be stingy with our grace. We must be full of grace and truth. So let's look at what Jesus taught about grace. This is point number three. Jesus often taught in parables. We know what they are. They're made up stories, usually with one or two points. Jesus used them to teach and impact his listeners. The rich, the poor, the politically connected, the everyday common man, male, female, it didn't matter. Everybody could relate to these stories. Jesus would often get to the crowd, all agreeing early on in the parable, and then he would deliver the punchline, right? The parable from Matthew 20 illustrates this. Look at this with me, verses uh, 1 through 16. So for the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. And he asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call all the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those who hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend... I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. This parable touches on two primary areas, okay? Number one is that Jesus wants a lot of people working in his vineyard. Number two is that he shares his grace extravagantly so first the owner goes to the marketplace five different times to get workers for his field he's looking for day laborers probably a real mix of people the unemployed the underemployed those who needed more money because of financial loss maybe those needing extra money for taxes i'm sure there was a mix of a lot of different people and just like the landowner who went out to get anyone and everyone jesus is an includer not an excluder Jesus wants everyone to be loved on, to be rescued and restored. Secondly, those who had worked the longest thought they should receive a little more than those who had worked not as long. They felt that they should get an extra bonus in their paycheck. They had endured longer. They had picked more grapes. They, had, they were tired and they were dirty and they were hungry. But instead of doing that, he does something entirely different and gives us a schooling on grace. He graciously rewards everybody the same. The same agreed amount of wage. It's not hard for us to sympathize with the guys 
who got there first thing in the morning, right? You would expect if you worked more that you would get more. We can almost hear the complaint echoing in our own minds. And to our American ways of thinking, this doesn't seem fair. It strikes against our sense of equal pay for equal work. If modern unions had existed in ancient Israel, there would have been a protest about this. Okay, just go ahead and write that down. A strike would have been called against the landowner and none of those grapes would have been harvested in time. Like many of Jesus' parables, this rubs us the wrong way and it, it even often offends us. This parable is not an isolated incident. The Gospels are filled with stories just like this where the expected order of things is tossed aside, the unlikely is embraced, all for the reason of teaching God's grace, God's economy of doing things and His values. These are the scandalous mathematics of grace. It's not what we deserve. It's what we need. It's not 2 plus 2 equals 4. And God's not bad at math. We've switched the price tags on everything in a subconscious movement away from grace. We've done that. We've taken things that are of great value and worth and we've swapped them for pennies on the dollar. We've traded in eternal glory for dollar store trinkets that will, break us before we, that will break before we even get home. We've pawned our marriages, our children, our values, our character, our integrity to buy a few cheap thrills and fleeting amusement. To love like Jesus means to see things in a new way. His teaching stretches our mind and it stretches our hearts. He wants us to weigh the things on scales of heavenly worth, not earthly value. For centuries, this has been called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It'd be more accurately called the parable of the gracious and generous landowner. Jesus isn't teaching lessons on economy, uh, economics. This isn't about fair labor practices. This is about generosity and grace of the landowner. Ultimately, the generosity and the grace of God. Despite the offenses taken by the first hour workers, they were paid a just and sufficient wage. It was a commonly accepted wage. It was a wage for which they agreed to work for. And it was a sufficient wage to supply their needs and provide for their families. He paid them what they needed to get paid. But look at this. He also gave the workers, the other workers, what they needed as well. Not what they deserved. They didn't work all day. He gave them what they needed. Anything less, and they wouldn't have been able to feed their families. Imagine a guy hired at the last hour trying to make do with one-twelfth of the living wage for that day. It wouldn't have worked. The landowner, because he was so generous, gave him what he needed, not what he deserved. It's the same with us. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. No matter how little we deserve it, no matter how insufficient our effort, God gives us what we need. Salvation isn't about what we deserve, it's about what God gives. We can never hope to earn our salvation. All, our only hope for God is to give us what we need. And God is a generous landowner. He gives all who come to Him what they need. Brings us to point number four. How do we take this? How do we become a better grace giver? In these stories, Jesus, Jesus perfectly displays, displays that he's full of grace and truth. And here's the application for us today. Okay, sit up in your spirits. Let's receive this. We've got to be full of grace and truth. Curiosity 
about a, why a person does what they do creates space for grace. It's about curiosity. Let me, let me tell you, okay? Almost every evaluation we make, every judgment, we talked about that a while ago, every judgment we make of others arises from incomplete information, okay? We fill in the gaps of what we don't know with preconceived judgments. Curiosity, however, keeps our judgments at bay. It opens our minds to the possibility that there's something about the situation that we don't fully understand. Picture this. It's a little story to help us get this in our minds. You're riding on a crowded bus going through the city, okay? You're minding your own business, and then you notice a dad and his two small children board the bus and sit down, and the kids are a nightmare. They're all over the place. They're making loud noises. They're jumping on people, and the dad seems totally oblivious to what's going on. After a while, you can't take any longer. You say, sir, will you please attend to your kids? They are out of control. And the dad seems to come out of his oblivion and says to you, I'm so sorry. I just didn't notice. You see, we we came home from the hospital and my wife, their mom, just passed away. And I I guess I'm kind of numb. What just happened? You went from judgmental to compassionate. Why? Because you got all the information. Now, because you have the information, it doesn't matter that the kids were being obnoxious, right? Because now you understand. And the point that I think God wants us to understand today is that when we look at other people and we judge them, we need to realize that we don't have all the information. And probably those gaps that we filled in in our minds are not correct. And we are treating them in a way that's not fair. When you see somebody that's acting nuts, stupid or worse, this is the question that you need to ask. I wonder what's going on in that person's life that I don't know about. Or it may not even be a tragedy. It may be that there's simply simply something that you don't understand. It may be that somebody's made a choice about something. And you may think it's the wrong choice, but there's a real good possibility that you don't have the information or the wisdom that that other person has. That's why you don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. And that's okay. It's okay to not know. It's not okay to judge on what you don't know. What we ought to do is be curious and ask questions. It opens up the lines of communication. And not only will you get all the information, but now there's an opportunity to learning. Maybe it's for you. Maybe you need some wisdom that this person has that you don't have. Or maybe you get to speak into that decision and share some wisdom with them that you have that they don't have. But if we don't ever talk about it, that's just lost. All that happens is is that we've judged one another. I've, I've been involved with this Central Louisiana Interfaith thing for a couple of months now. And one of my favorite things that's happened is having conversations with people that are not like me. Whose life experiences are different from mine. And, and I'll be honest, there's been some opportunities or there's been some times where I've made a comment or they've made a comment and you can tell immediately by the body language that something has not been communicated well. And, and here's what we've done because we're committed to developing these relationships is we ask the hard question of, what did you mean by that? Can we dig into that a little bit? And you know what's happened in every one of those circumstances? Both people, myself and the other person, have walked away knowing more than we did before and not judging one another but loving one another because now we understand. Church, if we're going to love like Jesus, it means we got to get to a place where we're comfortable asking why. 
of saying, I don't know that I understand what's happening in this scenario. Can you enlighten me a little bit? It's going to require us to do what we talked about in the very beginning, to do hard things or to do something that's uncomfortable. And the result of doing those hard and uncomfortable things is going to be that we know the person and we know Jesus better. It's going to open us up to be able to give grace to other people. That same grace that we enjoy, that same grace that has made us who we are, we're now going to get to share that with other people. And just like the thief on the cross, those people are going to experience the grace that can only come from God. And they're going to see God for who He is, and they're going to recognize the Messiah. Not because you're a great person, but because Jesus Christ is working through you. His grace is coming out of you. That's what it means to love like Jesus. That's where I want to be. And I know that's where you want to be too. So this week i got a couple of little uh, application things for you, okay? These are some, some things, some steps you can take this week to help you kind of move in that direction. The first one is determined to get the rest of the story before acting impulsively or judgmentally. This week as you're going through your week with your coworkers, with a significant other, whoever it is, when something comes up, and you feel that little judgment start happening, just hit the pause button. Get some more information. Number two, talk with God about the areas of your life where you react in judgment, not in grace. In every one of our lives, there's a place where immediately we, we react with judgment and not with grace. And typically, that's in the area of dealing with somebody that we don't particularly like. So talk to God about that. And number three, make a list of grace-filled actions that you can implement this week. There's probably a scenario in your life every day that is a struggle. Make a list about how you can be more graceful in those situations. You know what they are. Church, we want to be like Jesus. We want to love like that, right? Most of what God does is love us. And we want to share that with other people by loving them too. Let's pray. God, I'm challenged by the message today. I know in my own life that it is a struggle sometimes to ask the hard questions, to dig a little deeper, to figure out what's really going on. Father, as all of us are figuring this out with you, Father, I ask that you'd give us boldness and courage with you and with the people in our lives. Teach us to love like you do. Show us the areas in our lives where we are acting with judgment and not with grace. Father, help us to see that and then help us to give you permission to work in that area of our life. Jesus, we are so thankful for the love and the grace that you have shown to us. Teach us how to be like you. We ask these things in your name.